Blog Talk Radio. Auckland Truth Be Told Radio, and what I'm going to do is going to start our lesson. The lesson is John MacArthur and the Joyful Slaves of Christ. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. I want you to turn back to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. This is a subject that has been much on my heart probably for 15 years or so. I remember flying to England, flying to London to do a Banner of Truth conference and uh, for the first time really awakening to the truth that I want to point out to you today. I, I knew it was there, but it was below the surface until that particular flight. I spent hours tracing a specific word through the Scripture and coming to a fresh understanding of the concept of slave, slaves of Christ, which is the theme. And it was a few years later that I wrote a book, and I presented it to the publisher, and they were not sure that I should be allowed to title the book Slave. That term is fraught with all kinds of expectations and implications, and they tried to get me to change the title, and I refused to do that because essentially I was uncovering a cover-up by using the word slave, and I wasn't going to cover up the uncovering of a cover-up by changing the title. So it's, it's available. It's called Slave. As we come to the 15th chapter of John, we find ourselves in the upper room, Thursday night of Passion Week. This is the night when the Lord celebrated Passover with His disciples. This is the last authorized an official Passover, the last one because after his death and resurrection, the Lord instituted a new Passover, memorialized not the blood sprinkled on the doors to deliver Israel from Egypt, but the blood on the cross sprinkled by the Son of God for our salvation. This was then the final Passover. By the time we get to the end of the 14th chapter, it's winding down. Our Lord has taught some amazing things in chapters 13 and 14. Judas by now has left to go meet 
the leaders of Israel who will pay him to deliver Jesus to them. His betrayal is obviously known to all of us. He'll take his 30 pieces of silver. It'll burn holes in his hands and his mind and drive him to hang himself. But Judas is gone from the upper room, and as we come to the end of the 14th chapter, we read that Jesus says, get up, let's go from here. Get up, because they reclined at a supper like this, many hours of enjoying that meal, remembering the Passover, and looking forward to our Lord's death. They're now walking toward the garden. They're walking toward the garden where he will be tempted where the temptation will be so severe he'll sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. They're walking toward the garden where they, along with him, for the purpose of prayer, will rather fall asleep. It's very late. It was a long meal. And they're sleeping when they should be praying. It is the garden of his temptation. It is the garden of his arrest. And the next morning, after a fake trial in the middle of the night, there will be the crucifixion of the Son of God. As they walk, the Lord tells them of His love for them. In fact, He's been telling them that since the beginning. This is really a night of love. From chapter 13 on through chapter 17, you hear Jesus. In the first few chapters, he's talking to them. In the final chapter, he's talking to the Father about them and us. But love is on his mind. Chapter 13 begins now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, ice tell us. He loved them to the end, to the max to the fullest capacity of his holy heart. It was about love. Verse 23 says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. In verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give you, he spoke, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Chapter 14, verse 21, he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to Judas, not Iscariot, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. In verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Then when we come to the 15th chapter, And come down to verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. That culminates in his prayer in the 17th chapter. At the end of his prayer to the Father, he says, verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. It's a night of love. It's the legacy of Jesus. Between chapters 13 and 17, He leaves the legacy to all who are His. He demonstrates to them His love by washing their feet, humbling Himself. He gives promises of His love by pledging to them peace, joy, the Holy Spirit who will come and take up residence in them, righteousness, access to all heavenly resources, assurance of salvation, and eternal life. All of these are promises of love. And He does give commands. But there's a purpose for those commands. The purpose of those commands is that their joy may be full. Full joy is the product of obedience. That's what verse 11 of chapter 15 says. If you're looking for joy apart from obedience, you're not going to find it. But the power behind all of this and the motive behind all of this is love. This is alien to any religion in history. No religion has a God who loves. Every manufactured religion is a product of Satan, and Satan is by nature a hater and a killer. Christianity distinguishes itself on that basis alone. God is love. God loves and He loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ loves us. And the Holy Spirit sheds love abroad in our hearts. If you belong to Christ, you are loved with a divine love that wants to lavish on you peace and joy, righteousness, all the riches of heaven, assurance, comfort, and eternal life. Followers of Jesus, then, are bound up in His love. We're connected to Him, as I read earlier in the beginning of this chapter, as branches to a vine, and the life flow is the flow of His love. But I want us to look this morning at verses 12 through 17 in particular, and especially at two terms that describe believers. We find them in verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, meaning no longer do I only call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. 
For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Two key words, slaves and friends. Slaves and friends. Does it seem strange to you to read verse 14? You're my friends if you do what I command you. Try that on anybody and see if that develops into a friendship. <laughs> Not likely. Friendship should be a kind of relation of equity and equality. Friendship does not really define itself by an authority-submission relationship. What kind of a friendship is it where you're commanding? Verse 12, he commands. Verse 17, he commands. This whole discussion is bracketed by commands and says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That introduces us to the other part, which is the slave part. We are slaves who are friends. You say, well, that seems like a strange relationship. Not really. Slavery was common in the ancient world. It was common even in the history of Israel. But it was common in the ancient Middle East, common in the Mediterranean world. And for many people, it could be the best of all relationships. It could. In fact, there were some conditions of slavery that were so wonderful, so fulfilling, and so rich a blessing to the slave that the slave would choose never to be turned loose. Exodus 21, listen to what Scripture says. Verse 5, If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. I don't want to go anywhere else because I love my master. And I love my family, so I want to keep all of us under the care of my master. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. I'll tell you what. That's virtually a perfect relationship to have a loving master that you want to serve the rest of your life because you love him and you know he cares for those you love. That same statement is repeated again in Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 and 17. So there is no stigma necessarily on slavery. The Bible doesn't condone it. It doesn't condemn it. It recognizes it as a social construct. But it does regulate it. And the slave in Israel would be freed at the Jubilee year, which was every seventh year, if that's what he wanted. But there were some masters who were so loving and kind and generous that the slave would want to be a slave for life and he would have a hole in his ear to signify that commitment. 
Fast forward to the time of the New Testament and you realize that probably a fifth of the whole Roman Empire were slaves, maybe as many as 12 to 15 million slaves. In fact, every skill and every profession involved slaves. It wasn't that they did merely menial tasks. They were teachers and they were artists and they were architects and they did virtually every kind of skill. But they were owned. And that ownership, depending on the treatment of the owner, could be difficult or it could be the greatest of all blessings. But if you were a slave who was a friend, then you had the perfect environment. You had access. You had intimate knowledge of your master. You were trusted by him and you trusted him. You were faithful. You were dutiful because you knew he cared for you. Very personal. Ramp that up to the highest level. The ruler had slaves. Caesar, the emperor, had slaves. History tells us that they had slaves who were more intimately acquainted with them than any noble or any politician or any senator or any other person. Most likely they were more intimately acquainted with the ruler than his wives and sometimes even than his children. They would be the ones who would take off his sandals at night, take off his robe. They would know his most personal desires, his weaknesses, his strengths. They would know his ambitions, his hopes, his joys. His slaves were his most intimate friends. They knew more about him than anyone knew. Slave was intimate with the master. And when the master loved the slave, there was a bond of service and friendship that was unique. Back in 1869, there was a hymn writer who saw that in this passage. And he wrote these words, O Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. O Jesus, thou hast promised to all who follow thee that where thou art in glory, there shall thy slave be. And Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Oh, give me grace to follow my master and my friend. That hymn celebrates intimate fellowship. It celebrates protection. I shall not fear the battle if you're by my side. Guidance and reward. Oh, let me see thy footprints, it ends, and in them plant my own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength alone. Oh, guide me, 
Call me, draw me, uphold me to the end, and then in heaven receive me, my master and my friend. It's an incredible thing that Jesus calls us friend. Friend is the word philos. The verb is phileo. It means to have affection for. It's to love. And we learn something about the intimacy of this friendship. Look at verse 15 again. In what sense can a slave be called a friend? Well, normally a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. He's not privy to inside information. You say to a slave, go here, go there. But the difference is, I've called you friends. Here's why. All things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. No secrets. Incredible. No secrets. Christ keeps no secrets from His slaves because they're His friends. This is a slavery that is marked by affection. Verse 12, I have loved you. Marked by salvation. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That's marked by revelation. All things I heard from my Father I made known to you. That's marked by election. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Marked by commission, appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Marked by fruition, your fruit would remain. And marked by provision, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's just overwhelming, isn't it? This friendship involves affection, salvation, revelation, election, commission, fruition, and provision. This is almost enough to take your breath away. To think that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's defined in this way. Stunning, stunning truth. We live in a dangerous world. I think we know that. There are deadly dangers all around us, both materially and spiritually. We need a master who can protect us, provide all we need, and love us all the way into glory. Now I'm going to say something you probably don't know. The most common term in the New Testament for Christians is slave. That's right. It's the most common term in the New Testament for Christians. And by the way, Jesus has more slaves than anyone. So we better start tearing down the statues. <laughs> he is Lord of all who belong to Him. So having said that, that's just the introduction. You can start timing me now. <laughs> Let's back off from that passage for a minute. What is the fundamental truth, the foundational reality, the core doctrine distinguishing absolute of Christianity? What is our common confession? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, no one can confess Jesus as Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit 
regenerates a heart, that new heart will confess Jesus as Lord. You who have been around Grace Church any length of time know that I have tried to emphasize the Lordship of Christ for decades and decades and decades because there's so little interest, even in the church, in the Lordship of Christ. It's been replaced by the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus. By the way, everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus, and with most, it's not very good. He will be their judge. To say someone has a personal relationship with Jesus is just too vague. What you need to say is, Jesus is Lord, and I am his slave, the object of his love. That's a God-centered understanding of Christianity, not a man-centered one. Jesus said in John 13, 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Being a Christian is confessing Jesus as Lord in full dedication to obedient submission to Him and to His will. Again, back to 15th chapter and verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Listen, you are obedient to the Son as the Son is obedient to the Father. The true reality of Christ's Lordship is constantly obscured. Because it's so demanding, so demanding. The fact that Jesus is Lord is clear. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, the passage we looked at a few weeks ago. Apostle Paul tells us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 20. Christ, whom God raised from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, and not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. He is the head over all things. He is Lord of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords. When He rose from the dead... Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, God gave him a name above every name. It's not the name Jesus, it's the name Lord. It's the title, Lord. Kurios. Kurios is the Greek word, and it appears 747 times in the New Testament. What does it mean? One who has power, one who has ownership, one who has absolute right to command. That is kurios. It has a synonym. The synonym in Greek is despotes, from which we get the English word despot. Kurios is a sovereign ruler. Despotes is an absolute ruler. And in Jude, verse 4, Jude brings it all together when he says certain persons have 
crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Despotes and curios. Extremely powerful words. Our Lord is referred to 92 times in the book of Acts. Two times He's called Soter, Savior. Ninety times He's called Lord. And He has called Lord to designate His absolute rulership, absolute dominion. He is a slave owner. And any denial of that is heresy, heresy. I've tried to help people understand that in the book, The Gospel According to Jesus, The Gospel According to the Apostles, The Gospel According to Paul and other books. People seem afraid to call people to submit to the Lordship of Christ. The Lord doesn't exist to fulfill what you want. but to have you bow your knee to Him as Lord. It's pretty clear from His words in the familiar ninth chapter of Luke, and I know you know this portion of Scripture, but it's one that we should proclaim widely when we evangelize people. Luke 9.23 He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, you want to be a follower of Jesus? It's going to take more than a wristband. <laughs> if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny himself. Literally, his will, ambition, plans, desires. Christ does not want to come into your life to give you what you want. He comes into your life to command you to do his will. Whoever wishes to save his life, if you're just trying to hang on to your life and have Jesus accent it with a few dust-ups and brush-ups, You'll lose your life. On the other hand, if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the point in diving into the prosperity gospel lie and thinking you're going to acquire everything you want and lose your soul forever? How, how is it possible? that we don't understand this truth. In the language of Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? This is very strong call. Jesus is Lord. If He is Lord and sovereign and absolute Master, what does that make us? Slaves. The Greek word is doulos. Dulos. It's used 130 times in the New Testament. 
It only means one thing, slave. Not ambiguous, doesn't mean servant. There are six other Greek words that mean servant, and they nuance the idea of service in different ways. It means slave, and it never means anything else. Well, what do we mean by slave? Someone who is owned? Someone who has no rights of his own, but somebody else has to plead his cause? In the Roman Empire, slave couldn't give testimony in court. He had no legal rights, no legal standing, could own no property, had no freedom, and no autonomy. That's a perfect definition of a Christian. You have no rights of your own to lay any claim on God. You have no legal status with God that could cause God to benefit you in any way. You need an advocate. You have to have someone acceptable to God, a free man who comes in your place. And that, of course, is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did it mean to be a slave? Doulos, according to one lexicon, is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is a word for which it is superfluous to give examples because it clearly means slave. What does that tell us? Slaves were chosen. They were bought. They were owned, they were cared for, and in the case of the Lord, loved, protected, lavished with heavenly riches. Yet, when you go to your English Bible, I don't care what translation you have, there are about 20 plus English translations, you're not going to know where the word doulos is because there's a cover-up. The only time that the New Testament translators, in all of these with very few exceptions, translate doulos as slave is when it's actually talking about a slave. Or metaphorically, such as Romans 6, a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. But whenever doulos is used to speak of a Christian, it's translated bondservant or servant. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? It goes all the way back to the early English translations when slavery was such a horrendous thing. All they could think of was some person in chains that they were loath to translate doulos as slave. There was just too much stigma. And so they invented a word, bond servant, or they just used servant. And consequently, they stole this tremendous truth from generation after generation of Christians. By the way, the language scholars of the Master's University and Seminary 
have finished the New Testament Proverbs and Psalms on a brand new translation called the Legacy Standard Bible that will translate doulas, slave, every time. They're working now in the Old Testament. It's an incredible task. Our Lord said in Matthew 6:24, no man can be a slave to two masters. Now, if we just say no man can serve two masters, yes, you can. Some of you have two jobs. Some of you have ten bosses. Some of you, everybody's a boss. Everybody in your building is a boss. You can serve lots of people, but you can't be owned by more than one. A servant works for someone. A slave is owned by someone. That's what it means to follow Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Be willing every day to die for your master. Take up your cross does not mean bear difficulty in life. Really, Jesus was saying it may cost you your life, so you have to calculate whether it's worth it. And then follow me, which means do what I say. Back to Luke 9 for a moment and verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I want to be a Jesus follower. Jesus said to him, good, because you'll be rich. It's not what it says. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. He said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You say, well, that seems reasonable. No, his father wasn't dead. He wanted to hang around the house until his father finally died so he could get the inheritance. Then he would follow. And so Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. A third would-be disciple came along and said, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Let me go and raise some support. Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is what it means to deny yourself. Follow Christ. It's a total abandonment to serve Him. This is such a challenging concept that over in the 13th chapter of Luke, someone in his traveling group of disciples said to him in verse 23, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's a narrow door. It's like a turnstile, and you can't carry your luggage through a turnstile. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Chapter 14, he's still trying to get them to understand this. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? 
or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all his possessions. It's a willingness to abandon everything. John 12, Jesus said, even your own life. This is the call to salvation. Abandonment of everything to follow Christ. The language of the New Testament supports this. Paul says, you're bought with a price. Peter says, you're bought with precious blood. In fact, look for just a moment at the book of Acts, chapter 2. Prophecy of Joel, as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse, pick it up in verse 17. This is what the prophet Joel said. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my slaves is the word, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Even the Old Testament knew that those who followed God were identified as slaves. In Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. They knew where their allegiance had to be. Go down to verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. The apostles, Peter and John, acknowledged they were slaves. You don't see that there because a word was invented to replace the stigma of the word slave. The apostles were happy to call themselves the slaves of such a loving Lord. Chapter 16, just another one from Acts. Verse 17, following after Paul and us, this woman, this slave girl, kept crying out saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God. Even a demon-possessed slave girl knew that. They were slaves. I don't have time to take you through all the passages that indicate this, but they're everywhere throughout the New Testament. As I said, 130 times the word slave appears. Colossians chapter 1, Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, our beloved fellow slave, not bondservant, slave. In the fourth chapter, again, I think it's verse 12, Epaphras, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's called that twice. Perhaps a more stunning realization, and there are many other, many other uses of slave, but the book of Revelation, I, I just point out that in the book of Revelation, we are identified as slaves. It's, it's really remarkable. I won't go through all of it. But wherever you see bond servant or uh, maybe servant, you need to look behind it and see if it's not slave. Let me just 
show you a few. Chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. During the time of the tribulation, God protects the earth until He seals, verse 3, the slaves of our God on their foreheads. These are believers in the coming time of tribulation who are identified as slaves. In chapter 10 of the book of Revelation, verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his slaves, the prophets. They were slaves. Chapter 11, verse 18, and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to reward your slaves, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name. Whether you're talking about Old Testament, New Testament, believers in all periods of time in redemptive history, they're all, all, always slaves. And in the 19th chapter, the proclamation of the return of Christ. Hallelujah, verse 1, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous, for He's judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His slaves on her. Even in the end time, when God destroys the world system, He identifies His people as slaves. Look at verse 5, a voice came from the throne. This is heaven saying, give praise to our God, all you His slaves. You who fear Him, the small and great. Chapter 22, we're in heaven. Do we get promoted there from slavery? Uh, no. <laughs> Chapter 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His slaves will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Slaves were branded. Did you know that? You're going to be branded eternally as a slave of Christ. Verse 6, He said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His slaves the things which must soon take place. The angels brought the visions in Revelation for us, His slaves, and when we get into eternal glory, we'll fully enter into our loving slavery to Christ. Romans 1, Paul calls himself a slave. Philippians 1, he calls himself a slave. Titus 1, he calls himself a slave. James calls himself a slave. Peter calls himself a slave. Jude introduces his epistle identifying himself as a slave. Revelation 1, 1 introduces John as a slave. Everyone who is in Christ is a slave. What does that mean? We were chosen. We were bought. We're owned. We're subjected. We're dependent. We're disciplined by a loving master. We're empowered. We're evaluated. We're rewarded. We're protected. You say, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I can see myself as a slave. 
Well, let me give you a good example you can try to follow. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is talking about humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's your example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave to us. You're not too good to be a slave. Jesus wasn't too good to be a slave. He was the son who became a slave. We were slaves who become sons, Right? He was the son who became a slave so that we who are slaves could become sons. How did Jesus manifest that slavery? He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do what the Father shows me all through the Gospel of John. My food is to do the will of my Father. Oh, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ... You're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. 1 Peter 2.16 Peter describes us as slaves of God. We're slaves. But John 1.12 We're slaves who not only are friends we're slaves who become sons joint heirs with Christ. Christ was the son who became a slave and was glorified. We are sinners who become slaves, who become sons, who become glorified. I want to show you something in Luke 17, and, and I'll close with this, although I have a lot more I'd like to say. That's what the preacher says when he's just run out of material. I know you don't believe that, but this is so wonderful, a place. Luke um, 17. Verse 7. Jesus says, which of you having a slave, and there it's translated slave because it's talking about an actual slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. <laughs> Who's going to do that? Feed the slave first. Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say this, we are what? Unworthy. What did you hear in that song? He is worthy. We are unworthy. 
we have done only what we ought to have done. And what is the the benefit of this? What is the fruit of this? Joy. Full joy. Full joy. Now I know you're going to want to get a copy of the Legacy Standard Bible when it comes out by Shepherd's Conference so that you'll see this word where it is and it'll totally transform your understanding of what it is to be a Christian. If you're looking for a church, ask one question. Is it full of those who confess Jesus as Lord and themselves as His willing, loving, obedient slaves? We have been chosen. We have been captured. We have been bought. We have been given all the resources of heaven. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We have the promise of eternal life and of being joint heirs with the Son of God Himself, sharing in all His inheritance and glory. Why does He lavish us with this? Because our Master is motivated by infinite divine love. God so what? Loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. One day, according to Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. You'll stand before him and you'll hear, Well done, good and faithful slave. Lesson learned. Let's pray. It's just overwhelming to think about this and to realize that we're so unworthy, sold in bondage to sin, slaves of iniquity, transgression, incapable, unwilling to be obedient to you. You picked us up. You chose us. You regenerated us. You justified us. And now you're sanctifying us so that we can be useful slaves. And what a delightful slavery it is. You meet every need. You provide every resource. Your love lavishes us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We have everything we need and more. We don't even begin to tap into the riches that are ours We have not because we ask not. We leave so many treasures in heaven that could be deposited in our lives if we were more faithful and obedient and prayerful. And yet in our unworthiness, you have seen fit to hold on to us, to protect us, and bring us to glory. And there, make us perfect like your Son, to share in His eternal inheritance to be lavished with all that heaven possesses forever and ever. 
happily we acknowledge you as our Lord. And we're so thankful to be your friends, intimate friends who, who know everything because you've held nothing back. We have your mind. We have the mind of Christ. We know our Master very well. And we know you love us. And you only wish for us the best. And you're actually working everything together for that. Because of that love. May we return that love in joyful obedience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to screw you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roof. Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed that was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the great I am. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, with the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his fright in the might, and a diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renowned, though. When he came for the lost, and he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Ripping on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spell bound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see. The fiber of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's potter, we are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to power.
poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old to New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all. Freedom from the effects of the fall. Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> Are there contradictions in the Bible? This is Ken Ham, author and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. Has someone ever told you they couldn't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions? Many Christians don't know how to answer, but here's one way. Ask them to name a contradiction. You'll find most people can't. They're just repeating what they've heard. Now, sometimes people will give an alleged contradiction, but it's usually just something that sounds illogical to them. Something illogical isn't a contradiction. Contradictions only happen when two opposing statements are both presented as truth in the same way. There are no contradictions in the Bible. The examples given are usually easily explained by just looking at the context. We'll talk more about this next week. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes.
show the Bible's not true? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. I've had people tell me that because there are miracles in the Bible, it's obviously not true. Just the stuff of legends, they say, but this is circular reasoning. It assumes miracles aren't true and therefore assumes the miracles in the Bible aren't true. But the Bible describes God as all-powerful. He's clearly able to do miracles. It's not hard for him to divide the Red Sea, feed 5,000, or raise Lazarus from the dead. God doesn't normally do miracles. That's why they're miraculous. They go outside how God normally sustains this fallen creation. But what was God's greatest miracle? Raising Jesus from the dead so we could have eternal life. Discover more about the truth of God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or share it with others when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Context is key. This is Ken Ham, and our 510-foot-long Noah's Ark is located in northern Kentucky. What's the most important rule in interpreting the Bible properly? Context. You can't just grab one verse and ignore all the others around it. And yet that's what many people do when they claim the Bible contradicts itself. They'll just grab a verse and ignore all the other verses that explain it. And it's also important to understand the types of literature that make up the Bible. Some passages like Genesis are clearly historical narrative and they should be read literally. Other parts are poetry which use figurative language. Sometimes alleged contradictions are just figurative language being read literally. Supposed contradictions are just that, supposed. Plan your visit to the popular full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
Reading the whole Bible. This is Ken Ham, publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. All this week we've been talking about supposed contradictions in the Bible. Yesterday we learned that verses need to be understood within the context of the verses around them. Well, there's another kind of context that's vital. You see, the Bible doesn't reveal everything about God and his plans throughout history in just one verse. That would be impossible. So we need to understand all of Scripture. Sometimes something seems like a contradiction only because it's not a complete treatment of the topic. But other verses throughout Scripture give us everything we need to know to understand it. No, when we look at it carefully in context, there aren't any contradictions in the Bible. There's so much more to discover when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
my best, I'll do my best, oh, I'll do my best for you. Logic possible because God exists. This is Ken Ham, author of the eye-opening book, Six Days and Church Compromise. You probably heard someone say that the Bible can't be true because it's full of contradictions. But this is a bad argument. You see, the Bible teaches that all truth is in God and God never changes. So we shouldn't expect truth to change. This is where the law of non-contradiction comes from. But if you don't believe God's word is true, you can only appeal to human experience. But our experience is very limited and we can't experience the future. So how do we know that truth can't contradict itself? Well, apart from the Bible, we don't. So this popular argument against the truth of God's word only works if the Bible is true in the first place. Find other faith-building resources to equip and encourage you when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, for all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display, and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David 
David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. that has confused some folks that God visits the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Some people have misinterpreted that to mean God punishes the kids and the grandkids for dad's sins. That is not the way it works. Ezekiel 18, you pay for your sins, pop pays for his sins, your kids pay for their sins. So if that verse doesn't mean that your kids and grandkids have to pay for your sins, what does that verse mean? that God visits the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. I think we can find the answer to that question at the Jewish Museum. That's right, a number of years ago, visited the Jewish Museum in Atlanta, and there was a sign that stuck in my noggin. Don't tell me what a good Jew you are. Show me your grandchildren, and I'll know what a good Jew you are. Why? Because the sins of the Father or the holiness of the Father will be reflected in the kids and the grandkids. That's what that verse means. If you've got a rascal for a pop, chances are pretty good the kid's going to be a nightmare too. On the other hand, might I suggest to you a holy father and mother that brings blessings to the third and the fourth generation. And so it is with Jonathan Edwards. This fellow has descendants that are, needless to say, rather extraordinary. Would like to show you, it's a bit of a fuzzy picture, a family tree. The descendants of preacher Jonathan Edwards contrasted to a criminal who lived the exact same time Jonathan Edwards did you're going to notice a big difference. To the left, Jonathan Edwards, his kids, grandkids, etc., 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, well, so far so good, 100 lawyers, 3 U.S. senators, and a vice president. That ain't so bad, is it? contrasted with a man who didn't make resolutions. Let's take a look at Max Jukes. 310 of his descendants died poor. 150 were criminals. Seven were murderers. More than 100 drunks and 190 prostitutes. That is visiting the sins of the fathers, the third and fourth generation. Conversely, we see God visiting the holiness of Jonathan Edwards to the third and fourth generations. Um, Houston, I... That is from Richard 
And you can find them on YouTube at W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Wretched. And then also they have a radio show, TV show, Wretched.org. Check out their website, Wretched.org. And you'll find their radio show and and, uh, the TV show, too. And also, like I said, they're on YouTube. Thanks for listening to me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Truth Be Told Radio. Next, this is from the viewers. Protesting brutality is a right and absolutely necessary, but burning down communities is not protest, it's needless violence. Violence that endangers lives, violence that guts businesses and shutters businesses that serve the community, that's wrong. Mr. Biden, what do you mean by that's wrong? It seems that you're unaware that an entire generation believed Darwin's theory of evolution. And that means there's no ultimate right or wrong. Morality is completely subjective. The ends justify the means. And if violence gets what they want, then might is right. They believe that those who have the power can do what they wish, unchallenged, even if their action is in fact unjustified. Now watch this. Do you believe in God's existence? So, is there such a thing as right and wrong? Uh, yes. Where'd you get that from? Elijah, what's your thoughts on the afterlife? I don't believe in that when you die, that you go up or down. I just think you sit underground until your body decomposes. But I sit? Sit underground. Like, you know, six feet underground. I do believe in reincarnation, as in you die and become someone else in the next life. Do you believe in God's existence? So... Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Uh, yes. Where'd you get that from? Well, that's knowledge. That's like common sense. Like, you know not to jump in front of a car. You know to wait for the car to pass. That's not a moral judgment. That's common sense. You don't jump in front of cars or jump off cliffs. Wrong, right? Do you believe in evolution? Hmm? You think you're an animal? Our genetics are linked to animals from back then, so yeah. I agree with that. We've all got genes. So, why don't you believe in God's existence? Um... I don't just see, like, there's just something that people use to lean on, to have something, like, not to be afraid of. They have someone to trust into, you know? Because not a lot of people open up to people, but they don't have a problem talking to someone that they believe is there. Are you doing anything that would be morally offensive to God? <laughs> how, how are we talking offensively? Well, when did you last look at pornography? Yesterday. Okay, if, if you lied and stolen? Not recently, not any time as a kid, yeah. Okay, so you were a lying thief? Back then, yes. Yeah, everything's back then. When I met you, it was back then, and everything's in the past. So, Elijah, could it be that you don't want God in your life because you're doing things, you know, are morally wrong that you enjoy? You enjoy pornography. I had God in my life as a kid, but the older I got, the more I saw, like, I don't see someone to look up to. Like, I never saw it as that. I never saw it as I can pray to someone and know that. I'm being watched. I never saw it. Like, I saw it as it's just something that people use to lean on to so the government can't scare them. They're like, God is watching over us. Yeah, and not just the government. A lot of religions do that. But the alternative, someone who's an atheist believes that they believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. Because that's your alternative. Either something made everything, like flowers and birds and trees and the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, all these things around us are either made by a creator or 
Nothing made them, which is scientifically impossible. So the evidence for God's existence is all around you. Just like you know someone made your car, you wouldn't think it just happened by accident. There's a car maker, car manufacturer. And so we all know God exists, and we know that God demands morality because we have a conscience. Conscience, conscience tells us right from wrong. That's why you said, you know, it's common sense to know right from wrong. It's intuitive because God gave us a conscience. So let's go through those commandments. You've lied and stolen. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Too many done it quite a bit? Too many. You love your mother? Love her. Would you ever use her name as a cuss word? With her, yes. Really? Yeah. It's like it's like an inside family thing. Well, you've just broken the fifth commandment. If you've used your mother's name as a cuss word, you've just dishonored your mother. You've had sex before marriage. Um, have you ever hated someone? Always. Really? Yeah. The Bible says, he who hates his brother is a murderer. So, Elijah, I'm not judging you, but I'm going to give you a summation of this little cross-examination as your prosecutor, you're the defendant, and I want you to plead innocent or guilty. But you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterer at heart who's dishonored his mother. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, we've looked at five of them, you're going to be innocent or guilty? Innocent. Why? It won't matter where I go. No, that wasn't the question where you're going. I said, if God judges you by those commandments on Judgment Day, would you be innocent or guilty? In his eyes, guilty. My eyes, innocent. Heaven or hell? Most likely hell. Now, does that concern you? No. Man, it horrifies me. Why? Because I love you. I care about you. I've just met you, but the thought of you going to hell, a human being that loves life and loves eyesight and hearing and music and food and all these things around us, You've, you've got a love for these things, that God should damn you in a place called hell where there's no pleasure. That takes my breath away. It so scares me because I know it to be true. You're like a little kid holding a stick of dynamite. The fuse is lit. It's getting closer and closer, and he loves the sparkle, and he's not fearful. You know what death is according to the Bible? Wages. It says the wages of sin is death. God's going to pay you in death for your sins. In the same way a judge will give a heinous criminal who's raped three girls and then murdered them, he says, you've earned the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what you deserve. And sin is so serious in the eyes of a holy God, he's given us the death sentence. We're on death row waiting to die. And after death, a judgment. And that horrifies me. Elijah, do you know what God did for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? No. Do you know who Elijah was in the Bible? No, I just know it's my name. Yeah, he's a man that called down fire from heaven. Wasn't there two Elijahs, though? There's Elisha and Elijah. There you go. Yeah, Elijah called down fire from heaven. These people were skeptics, a whole stack of people that were worshipping a false god. So Elijah says, watch this. And he made an altar, and he poured water on it. It was a stone altar. And he says, God, if you hear my voice, if you're the true God, send fire down from heaven. And fire came down and consumed the altar, licked up the water, and... And I'm saying to you today, if you come to God in the name of Jesus and say, God, I'm a sinner, he will confirm that to you. He'll transform me on the inside and cause you, a sin-loving sinner, to love righteousness. Let me tell you what God did so you wouldn't have to go to hell. 2,000 years ago, God became a perfect man, Jesus of Nazareth, who gave his life on the cross. Most people know that, but they don't know this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. That was his last words. It is finished? In other words, the debt has been paid. Elijah, if you're in court and someone pays your fine, the judge can let you go. Even though you're guilty, you can say, Elijah, stack of beating fines. Someone's paid him. You're free to go, and he can do that, which is legal, right, and just. Even though you're guilty, you walk because someone paid your fine. And even though you and I are guilty before God of 
multitude of sins and crimes against his law, God can let us walk. He can take the death sentence of us and let us live forever because Jesus paid the fine in his life's blood, and he can do that which is legal and right and just, all because of that cross and the death and resurrection of the Savior. And all you have to do to find out if God is true and real and find everlasting life is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, like you trust a parachute. You're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet. Tell me, why would you put on a parachute? What would your motive be? Yeah, what would be your motive for putting the parachute on? So you don't hit the ground? Yeah, fear. You, you fear hitting the ground. At a... I went skydiving. I didn't fear of hitting the ground. I just, when I was in the plane, I feared the plane wouldn't take off. And then when I was in the plane, when we jumped out, I was like, I'm going to fear it won't open. I didn't fear of it. At first, I was like, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But then when we sat there and we jumped out, halfway following the ground, I was like, I hope it opens. All late, though. And did it? Yeah. It was a joke. It did. But the guy, the guy, like, was like, oh, oh. And I was like, oh, don't say, oh. We're, like, halfway to the ground. Now tell me, for someone whose parachute doesn't open, it gets twisted like happens to many people. Heard of a girl in Northern California who jumped. She wasn't dumb. She went with a... An instructor with her, strapped to her, or she was strapped to him. And when the parachute got twisted, uh, they, her friends heard a scream. And when her body hit the ground with the instructor, they felt the ground shudder from 100 yards away. What do you think your last thoughts were? If I was in her shoes, it'd be like, oh. But if it was her, I can't imagine. So what I'm trying to say is you put on a parachute because you fear hitting the ground at 120 miles an hour on your face. So fear is a good motive for putting the parachute on. And what I've tried to do with you today... Let's put the fear of God in you, make you fearful, hoping you'll see fear is your friend, not your enemy. And say, man, if I die in my sins, I'm going to be damned by God. I really need to think about my eternity. What's going to happen to me if I die on the way home, way home today or if I die in my sleep? 150,000 people die every 24 hours. A lot of young people die when, they, when they're young because they don't think about life and how precious it is. They do dumb things. So will you please think about what we talked about? Yes, sir. Will? Yes. Well, that... That makes my day. It really does, because I do seriously care about you. Do you have a Bible at home? I've been around since I've lived in Texas. Oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm going to give you some literature. Was your dad a Christian? Um, it started off uh, Catholic because my grandparents, and then we branched off to Christian, and then I branched off to atheist. Yeah, well, you're listening today because of your father's prayers. Okay, he loves you, cares about you, and so do I, and so does God. And I'm going to give you some literature. Hey, thanks for listening to me. I really appreciate it. Of course. You caught my attention with your cute little dialogue. I gave uh, Elijah uh, Save Yourself Some Pain. And what a delight that someone who professes atheism, so open, so reasonable, and uh, he's going to think about what we talked about. So please pray for Elijah. Check it out. And there it says um, why Biden uh, violence is wrong. And um, what I'm going to do now is this is to get social with us. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is 
T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Living Waters clip that was from YouTube. Living Waters, L-I-V-I-N-G-W-A-T-E-R-S. And they have a website, livingwaters.com, livingwaters.com. livingwaters.com. And that's all I got for the show. We're going to go out with Nancy and the friends with the V-I-B-L-E. And bye for now.